Welcome to New Books in Intellectual History. I'm Carl Dellis, a co-host of the channel, and today we are talking with uh, Dr. Arlie Hochschild, who is Professor Emerita at UC Berkeley. She's written nine books, has a very distinguished career as a sociologist. We are delighted to have her on the New Books Network today. Dr. Hochschild, welcome. Well, I'm delighted to be here, Carl, and talk with you. So today we're going to be talking about Dr. Hochschild's most recent book, Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right. Uh, it was released from the New Press in 2016 and is now out in paperback uh, with a new afterword. Let's start in terms of context to writing this project. Well, you know, much of my work has been based in a desire to understand the social worlds we live in. And so I've, I've tried to go out of my own social world and really uh, get into understanding others. Mm-hmm. Um, I did um, one book on um, low-income elderly. That was my first book, mm-hmm. The Unexpected Community. And and uh, Okies and Arkies, who came out during World War II and to the shipyards. I did another book um, on flight attendants and bill collectors who were doing <laughs> what I came to call emotional labor. Mm-hmm. And um, did another on um, migrant nannies and uh, interviewed a lot of, of, of nannies who left their own children and elderly behind in Sri Lanka and the Philippines and mm-hmm. Mexico to come and take care of our elderly and young. So other worlds has been had a real call for me. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what I had never done before writing strangers in their own land was to look at a, another political world and I realized that I was in Berkeley, California, which is a super blue state in a, mm-hmm. <laughs> a city in a in a blue state. And I realized I didn't know many people who differed in their perspective from me. And my friends and neighbors didn't either. We were in a bubble. Mm. And then I realized that we're all in a bubble. And some more than others, people right. on the left more than people on the right, and then I need that was that was another world. So it came easy to me to uh, make a migration into that. But I have to say this has been probably the most um, interesting, surprising, uh, high learning kind of journey that that I have been on. Yeah. So maybe I should say a little about what that was. Sure, sure, yeah, that'd be yeah. great. So what I did was leave a a liberal um, bubble of Berkeley, California, and mm. seek out an equal and opposite right-wing uh, bubble in the South. But where in the South? How about mm. the Super South? Well, where in the Super South? How about Louisiana oil country and petrochemical mm. Uh, dominant country. So that's, I ended up around Lake Charles, Louisiana, spent five years really getting to know um, members of or uh, enthusiasts for the Tea Party. Mm -hmm. And so that was the stretch. And they 
welcome me, actually. I mm-hmm. thought they would think I was the devil incarnate. But they, <laughs> <laughs> you know, they would, they'd say, yeah, you know, you people don't know who we are. We're the flyover state. You just think we're, we're rednecks and uh, ill-educated and, and prejudiced and racist and sexist. Well, you tell them straight. You know, you, you go back and you, you tell them how we, how we are. Right. And in fact, that's what I tried to do. And you said you write this in the book too, and describe some of your research process that it took uh, that it was five years of, of of work. Can you talk about when that started and the the period in which you were doing the research? Yeah, and I like to talk about what that work was because mm-hmm. it, what it really was was empathy stretching. You know, the work of suspending your judgments, mm. which are real idea stoppers. You know, I think we. I think we all have judgments. We all need ultimately judgments, but to really have the right kind of judgments, um, I think we need to stretch as far as we can into comprehending the experience of of people different from ourselves. In this case, it was a social class stretch and a regional stretch. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's the same race as the people. I talked to, uh, and uh, a political stretch. Right. It's, they they had no use for government. I want a good government, you know, <laughs> right. making a right. better world. And I started with that one, and there were many other huge stretches. So mm-hmm. uh, that's what the work was. Um, and And so it was a question of learning to take my political and moral alarm system off, which... Mm which isn't that easy to do, you know. Um, but once you get the hang of it, you you can do it. So you're mm-hmm. just there active listening and permitting yourself a great deal of curiosity mm-hmm. about people you know you have big differences with. And um, they made, they came from their side too. You know, mm-hmm. I've, I dropped out of the sky, Mary Poppins style, from their point of view. Who was I? From Berkeley? Berkeley, California. A lot of jokes about Berkeley. Yeah. Oh, y'all communist up there? You know, I got that kind of thing. Yeah. Um, but I also got a sense of humor, you know, as if, well, that was partly how we do think about you, but partly a joke and I don't mean to dismiss you. So they, from their side, cried, tried to climb an empathy wall. And the best, the best conversations I had were after I really came to know some. We went out fishing together, mm-hmm. you know, and the fish aren't biting, and you're just there with your reel, and you're you're out there, and you've come from your side of the empathy wall, and they've come from theirs, and you can you can kind of talk in that mood. Mm-hmm. Um, that to me was the point of the book and what the message I want to carry out of it mm. that we in this divided, bitterly divided country, ever more divided country, mm-hmm. um, this is the kind of almost pre political um, layer of relationship we mm-hmm. need to lay down across the nation, mm. especially for young people. Um, so that we can begin to entertain a conversation first about like particular issues. Mm-hmm. You know, don't we on both sides want to avoid 
a war with Korea. You know, right. Both <laughs> yeah. sides yeah. want to reduce prison populations. They do, too. So things like that, finding strips of agreement and going from there. When you were going from research, from these conversations, from these relationships that you were building over time to mm -hmm. writing a book with a reader in mind, who did you mm -hmm. imagine you really wanted to reach with this conclusion that you just stated? Mm -hmm. Did you have an in one intended audience, many intended audiences when you were writing? Two intended audiences. Mm -hmm. And um, on both sides, both extremes. Mm -hmm. And uh, I was writing for uh, the people I came from, people mm -hmm. I know and have worked with and lived among yeah. and agree with, and, uh, and the people I went to. Uh, whom I came to like and understand at a, a better level. <laughs> so really both. Uh, mm -hmm. And I hope to engage them in the same process as, as I myself engaged in. So it was a dare, you might mm -hmm. say. And I've gone back and forth. Who am I fending with this and that, you know? Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. Spent some sweat on that. <laughs> <laughs> and when it, when it comes to writing like that, you have a distinguished academic career. This book was, and I want to get this right, it was a National Book Award finalist, right? Right, right. So um, it's the kind of book that reached, I mean, I saw it on a number of reading lists. I saw it reported widely as well. Um, it's the kind of book that reached far outside the walls of the academy, and it sounds like that was your goal. Can you right. talk about thinking about what that means in terms of uh, style, voice, approach to writing this kind of book that addresses politics, addresses history, addresses culture? How did that intended audience... And mm -hmm. that goal to reach outside the academy to people across the political chasm. Uh, yeah. How did that shape your writing? I think that, uh, first of all, imagining who you're talking to mm -hmm. is really important. And if you're an academic, uh, such as I in my career have been. <laughs> yes. <laughs> yes. Um, it's uh, your first audience is uh, your professors and their professors and the idea of um, an ever accumulating kind of wisdom uh, mm -hmm. that is data-based and reason-based uh, on particular issues. So I, um, but I often found the writing very poor. Hmm. And so what I, uh, I was extremely in my writing, mindful of these debates. I learned from them, mm -hmm. I, you know, so it's, it, I didn't go for pop writing, leaving academia behind. Right. Right. Yeah. And I think people have an eye at, at first had, uh, an idea about, um, mainstream writing, writing for the general uh, intelligent reader mm -hmm. as um, as maybe I'll have to simplify my thoughts. Mm. Well, wrong. Yeah. Wrong. Um, you need to write clearly and read the best novelists for 
clarity of language, mm-hmm. you know. Mm-hmm. Just uh, clear your head. Do it every every evening. Yeah. Um, read 10 pages of great writing. Put it in your head. Dream with it. <laughs> so yeah. clarity, yes, but simplicity, not. Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. Um, there's there's nothing about the search for truth and academia which says you should write poorly. This right. is just... Uh, you're you're hiding behind mm-hmm. you know, cotton balls to do that. So, yeah, I think the the challenge of writing clearly is that you are challenging yourself to think clearly and see when you've run across a paradox or a contradiction. Mm-hmm. So, um, imagine as your audience um, a really intelligent, empathic friend. Right. Now, a friend that when you talk to them over lunch, you really feel challenged that they're right where you are or above in an understanding of a particular thing. So imagine you're talking to them. So it's really neither an academic that you, whose work you've read and you don't know, nor is it some pop, you know, some person you don't know, but who's, who's reading an advice book on the bus. You, mm-hmm. you want, that in between thing for your so first thing is to imagine your audience and then um the second is to um figure out how to assemble all the knowledge you've got mm-hmm. in some coherent way and in my career i've done it two kinds of ways i realize mm-hmm. one I really both have to do with drama which seems mm-hmm. like it has nothing to do with either of the audiences I've referred to. But uh, but one is um, like a, a theoretical drama. I wrote a book called The Managed Heart mm-hmm. um, and Commercialization of Human Feeling. And it was based on interviews with flight attendants and bill collectors. And... It was going after how they thought about the work they did. Mm-hmm. Was it mm. intellectual? Was it physical? Or was it emotional? Right. What if some passenger is insulting you and you have to be nice about it? <laughs> right. Know? Yeah. So I, yeah. I was trying to think about that. But the way the book came out was through asking um what is it we do when we work? Okay, partly it's to induce the feeling that goes with the job. Mm-hmm. So to be nicer than natural sometimes or meaner than natural, that there is a there's an occupation and then there are occupational rules of feeling. So that led to the idea of feeling rules. Mm-hmm. Okay, do we have them in work? Yes, and then we also have them at home. A convention laid upon your feelings. So then I go to, well, so what is a feeling? Mm-hmm. Now, so it had a logical uh, kind of progression, and the drama was the based on the unfolding of of uh, what one chapter presumed the other now questioned, and mm-hmm. what that one questioned now something else you're questioning. Um, now, other books I've done, like the Second Shift. Working Parents and the Revolution at Home have a more personal drama, Mm. I would say. Mm. And in the sense that you start with a problem that 
and this was written 1989, came out, um, you know, that increasingly women were changing. They were being called into the labor force. They had to supplement their husband's incomes right. uh, because their husband's incomes were declining. So they were changing, but the men that they uh, loved and the workplace they were going out to were not changing, right? Mm. So it began with a problem, and then through the stories of individual couples, it it sought for a solution, you know, and looked mm-hmm. along the way at how things can go haywire and create terrible tensions. So uh, in this book, Strangers in Their Own Land, I would say that it's more on the second model, that mm. it begins with a conflict which was the red state paradox. How could it be that the poorest states, the states with the worst education and health, the most disrupted families, highest addiction, lowest life expectancy, are Mm. also the states that take more money from the federal government in aid than they give to it in tax dollars and hate the federal government. Now, wait a minute. They're very conservative red states. So, I began with a problem that was on my mind. You know, mm-hmm. gee, how does this work? And I picked the second poorest state to kind of just go where the contradiction would mm-hmm. shout a little more loudly. And then the drama began by taking that question into the lives of a variety of people. Mm-hmm. You know, how did they think about it? In the end, it turns out that's a liberal kind of a question that was on my mind, but it <laughs> right. wasn't on theirs. They yeah. were embarrassed yeah. by it. They, you know, they didn't want those bad rates, but it wasn't the most important thing to them. Mm-hmm. And I had to let go of my question. And I mean, it's still an important question to me. I, yeah. you know, when yeah. you suspend your assumptions, it doesn't mean you don't go back to them. You do, but um, it also opened up the possibility of my understanding what I came to think of as their deep story. Mm -hmm. So it sort of leads toward a mystery. You keep, in other words, your your work either way, these two models, the managed heart model or the strangers in our own land model, you're you're driving to a solution to a problem you have in mind. Mm And so there, but there are two kinds of drama that I think um, drive the reader to the book. Yeah, and I one of the things that I've seen in so much of your writing, uh, but really comes to the fore in this book, is the way that you present that drama through real human stories. You tell stories, yeah. and I, I don't always see that in academic writing, even if it's about a subject that you know that has uh, real impacts or is is really involved with lives on the ground all over the place right now. Yeah. But part of the way that I think your book does address multiple audiences is by presenting narratives as arguments. So there's an academic argument there, but it's told through people's stories. And right. that, I think, makes it emotionally powerful as, an, uh, as a book to read, uh, even as it right. is compelling as an argument as you're pulling the pieces together. Can you talk a little bit about how the book is divided into four sections. The first one is the great paradox, some of those questions that were driving your research. Uh, Then you talk about the social terrain of the people that you met as you were addressing that paradox. And then part three is the deep story. Mm -hmm. And I've heard you in other interviews talk about what that deep story is. But what I really loved about this section was the way that you populate that deep story with characters. Can you talk about who those characters are 
and how in the figure of these characters you make an academic argument as you tell their stories. Mm, yeah, and you, by um, the third section of the book, have already met the characters. Yes, yes. In different contexts. It doesn't come out of nothing. Uh, and so the the deep story doesn't seem like I just made it up. It seems like it's derived from my knowledge of mm-hmm. them. Mm-hmm. And uh, I did keep the tape recorder going. I t- would, how this happened is I would go to a person and said, you know, I really like to profile you. Does this be okay? And this is the purpose of the book. And I come from a very different you know, political culture than you do. And I feel like we don't understand each other. Is it okay? Would you? And they would say, yeah, sure. And I said, I like to use this tape recorder, but you tell me if there's any point which there's something you don't want known mm-hmm. and um, I'll turn it off. And that's the deal, which I uh, certainly abided by. Mm-hmm. And so I, I got their voice into my part and into mm-hmm. the tape recorder. And I'm listening <laughs> to the tape recorder after. I remember the tone of voice, you right, know, right, sort of yes. going for their emotions, what they're caring about. And uh, so I was also a, going by a an old rule of writing, and I know you've taught taught writing. Mm-hmm. Um, it's uh, show don't tell, right? You know, so, um, how did they say it? In, in what words? the context so that I'm not this you're minimizing voice over as much as you can hmm. that's what I tried to do I'm, I'm going to close our conversation by asking you is there anything else you would like to make sure to include in our conversation about the book yeah by any book I think um, of this sort points to um, action mm-hmm. and that any book is an invitation to ask further questions and also an invitation to do something about the problems that the book's about. Mm-hmm. And my own personal answer uh, to the what should I do question mm. at this moment in history, 2018, is to get involved mm-hmm. in an effort to address our political moment, and I see four pillars of activism, hmm. which in brief are, first, in order of of importance, first, actively get out of any moment of depression or avoidance and hmm. get involved mm-hmm. in um, doing everything you can, first of all, to preserve the idea of democracy, checks and balances, a free press, mm-hmm. a independent judiciary, these things are now under attack. Mm-hmm. And yeah. I think that's the first order of business, however you can. The second is to, I think, revamp the Democratic Party platform, which does not speak to the people I came to mm. know. Mm. And uh, I don't see a clear move in that direction as we speak. Hmm. So that's the second thing, so that there's a real choice for people. And uh, the third is to get out the vote. Yes. Most millennials, 18 to 26, did not vote this last election. Mm-hmm. Only 42% did. Fourth is to reach out to people you don't agree with. 
And we know that some six to eight million people voted for Obama in 2012, but voted for Donald Trump in 2016. Wouldn't it be interesting to have a conversation with them? So those, I think, are an action implication of this book, and I think it's important. Again, just uh, thanks for joining us on the New Books Network. Again, we were talking about Strangers in Their Own Land, Anger and Mourning on the American Right uh, by Dr. Arlie Russell Hochschild. Uh, Dr. Hochschild, thank you. Well, my pleasure. Great to talk to you. 